0: To Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Editor in Chief, Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined today by Associate Editor, Dr. Sarah Wright.
1: We're bringing you a special episode with our guests, Dr. Mary Beth Whitcomb. Mary Beth, we're so excited to speak with you today. And today, we're also joined by Susan Jones. So, Mary Beth is a Professor Emeritus in Surgical and Radiological Sciences at the University of California, Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Susan, we are so excited for you two to be with us today, and Susan is actually joining us from Ireland, which is fantastic, and she is a diplomat of the American College of Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation and currently runs a referral, ultrasound, and sports medicine service in Melbourne. In this episode, we're going to talk about their manuscript, Ultrasonic Diagnosis of Femoral Fractures in Large Animals. Whitcomb and jones thank you so much again for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's dive right in. So Mary Beth, I'm gonna ask you the first question. You mentioned in your manuscript that femoral fractures are often catastrophic in large animals. How does ultrasonography provide an alternative to radiography for definitive diagnosis in these cases?
2: Oh, uh, ultrasound has the advantage of being highly portable. I mean, radiography is as well. The problem is, is um, taking a, a, a radiograph of the femoral region in these large animals is pretty challenging in the field. It's challenging in a, a referral hospital that has all the tools at their disposal as well. So ultrasound's pretty handy that you can break it out and use it almost like you know, when we use it for uh, detection of pelvic fractures too. And so using it for the femoral fractures is just kind of an extension of what we're already doing with the pelvic fractures. So uh, something that pretty much anybody could do in the field, um, as long as they've got, you know, the right equipment, um, they can take a crack at it uh, versus radiology is going to be much more challenging. It may not even be possible in the field. Definitely.
1: I can relate to that. I did some work with. Free-ranging large pinnipeds, so like really big sea lions in Canada last year. And I feel like ultrasonography would probably be much more portable and a bit easier than even our portable radiography units sometimes, too. So very interesting there. And then Sue, what are your tips and tricks for skin penetration for ultrasonography? I know some clinicians struggle with this, especially depending on the species that they're working with.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question and really pertinent in this paper with the group of species that we had. And the key is yes, skin preparation uh, will make all the difference to the image quality. We usually start certainly in the horse and cattle as well. We'll clip with a forty or fifty blade, and warm water was also something which I thought made a huge difference to image quality. So it's just taking that time to really soak the soak the skin, plenty of warm water, dry, and then gel, and usually you're good to go. And that's possibly where we fall down as uh, equine clinicians is not having enough time to do that but it does make all the difference.
0: I think that's a really good point Sue you know I think in academia people tend to clip I don't know in private practice I haven't been out in private just in academia but it's clip and then throw a bunch of gel on and and you're not getting all that air from even the clipped hair and and it's just a bucket of warm water and a sponge for lungs or legs or whatever it is just is invaluable. I, I Maybe we can try and stress that a million times today to (laughs) make sure you just have that big sponge and wet them down. It doesn't need to be anything fancy.
3: I think in uh, practice it's still the uh, lashings of uh, alcohol and hoping for the best. Uh, I think will not stand you in good stead if you need to do an exam that's going to take a little bit of time so uh,
0: yeah I think that's very true even maybe we can um you know, uh, the first person I saw do this it made a huge difference in unclipped racehorses for lung ultrasounds and she would take and go over the hair coat 10-15 times with that sponge so you know damp sponge not dripping because you don't want the horse to jump and then over and over it I mean I know this sounds ridiculous but what, what's your do you even think about it or do you just wipe them down five or ten times as in what What do I do yeah how many times do you wipe for a femoral fracture for example if I wasn't allowed to clip for any
3: reason either way if you're not either clipping way, you it's, um, until my hands are warm if you're, uh, if it's nice, warm water, once my hands are warm, I think we're usually, so yeah, there's no determined figure, I guess, or time, but uh, anytime I think I'm done, I'll add probably another couple of minutes because I'm probably still operating as an equine, lack of time, lack of patience. Um, so I will add time whenever I think I'm done. I'll add more time.
0: Yeah. I, li- I really like your point too. And something I always stress when I was teaching, like horses don't love cold alcohol running down their legs. <laughs> you know, and then it hits their coronary band or it trickles down from their chest under their legs. And uh, so the warm water trick is really, really huge. Great idea.
2: That uh, um, sometimes when people clip and I see this uh, more in, with, you know, general practitioners is they'll break out the 10 blades. Yeah. And and to me, it's if, if you're going to clip, you got to go small, you got to do, you know, most people have 40s um if if you're going to spend the time clipping spend it with 40s and don't start with 10s and then go to 40s um then it just takes double the time and sometimes if you clip try to clip with 40s after you've done 10s it gets hard it's actually harder to get underneath the the hair so uh just one one tip that I think is a really a good one to not don't bother
0: with 10s totally agree huge huge tip yeah totally agree too uh, you, I'm, you may know I've been an equine practitioner for 30 years, and ultrasound of femoral fractures and pelvic fractures, as you said earlier, so really, uh, or Mary Beth I think said it really transformed equine practice from dragging a horse into a <laughs> into a scintigraphy unit or any of those things, and for cattle as well, as you point out in your manuscript. What what inspired you to fill this knowledge gap? in, in our large animal practice. Mary Beth.
2: <laughs> um, well, I might turn it back to Sue in a second. Um, oh, but because okay. because it was, uh, it, she was kind of the driver for the topic. Um, but as, uh, she, this was her fellow project when she was a large animal ultrasound fellow at UC Davis and, um, and, and she's and we allowed them to pick their project. We usually we had a few projects that were sort of, you know, kind of in the in the background for us. And um and so this this sort of came out of that. And I'll let Sue share why she chose this topic.
3: Excellent. I was going to say really it was yeah, Dr. Wickham and Dr. Betsy Vaughan, who's also on the paper. So obviously they head up the fellowship um, program, really encourage um, participation in research. And I'd always have thought of myself as an equine clinician, I guess, first. Um, so that project which would allow in-field or on-farm improvements in equine practice was a no-brainer for me. I thought anything that's going to improve, it's not just in an academic scenario. This is actually primarily for an in-the-field um, improvement for where we're at with imaging. And I think it's fabulous. So, yeah, it was a very apt project for myself.
2: There were also a couple of cases, too, that had come in early mm-hmm. in Sue's um, uh, fellowship that I think that was, you know, that helped her pick,
0: um,
2: mm-hmm. you know, with exact I totally, I mean, I remember her saying exactly what she just said, but it, I think it was also seeing those two cases at least two uh, yeah. fellowship uh, really inspired her as well.
0: Yeah, it, like I said, as an equine practitioner and bovine, we do a lot of bovine, it's Ultrasound has been transformative. And to be a little bit self serving, you may or may not know that we now have video only manuscripts in JAVMA and AJVR. So I would love to have you or your next fellow submit or sue how to ultrasound a horse's pelvis, how to ultrasound a horse's leg in the field. And they're fully searchable DOI, it's a fully cited manuscript. Um, so a little pitch out there for Sue and Mary Beth. <laughs> I mean, we'd rather have them come where, you know, they'll be reviewed and all those sorts of things rather than going to YouTube or some of the other places. So we have you guys, the experts, uh, creating these videos. So, yeah, love to see that. What couple life lessons would you share with someone trying to emulate your success? Yeah, I read that question. I thought it was
3: an interesting one as regards defining success alone is probably difficult and quite unique, I guess, for each each person. Um, I think for me, it was saying yes to pretty much any opportunity that came my way, irrelevant of preconceptions or otherwise, was just saying yes. So it keeps all doors open and you never know where that door is going to lead, what path you're going to end up going down. So I think for me, it was saying yes, um, yes, yeah, certainly contributed significantly um, and also accepting if you aim for some form of success, there are going to be some sacrifices and probably making peace with that. Yeah, is quite important um, because I think this uh, situations where you can have your cake and eat it too are few and far between. So you just have to accept that nothing is, it's not easy and there will be sacrifices of some sort. Very good. How about you, Mary
0: Beth?
2: yeah I, I saw that uh question as well, and i I hadn't seen it when i when I did the first glance through um the questions, and then right before we sat down, I looked at it I thought, oh my gosh, how do you sum how do you sum that up? But what popped into my head, the two words that popped into my head were uh be persistent and be consistent' And um, I know they rhyme, but that's what that's just what popped in my head. And I thought, you know, that probably is pretty um, accurate for, for me. I feel like I've been very consistent over the years and in, in how I approach ultrasound and how I approach using ultrasound in horses. Um, and and because of the way that we. Uh, did our exams in large animal ultrasound, similar to radiographic studies. Uh, you know, a horse didn't just get the one thing that the surgeon was worried about. They got the entire exam, not the whole horse, but the entire region. And we were very, very consistent with that. And because of that, it really enabled us to have a lot of data um, and, and good quality data to publish the retrospectives that we've done over the years um and and persistent, I think this is a really good this paper was a good example of being persistent um uh I probably could share that um Java was not our first submission. And the reason why it wasn't is because the time before, uh, the last time I had published in JAMA, it took a really long time. And I thought, I just didn't really want to have that prolonged uh, time period. Of course, you can edit this out if you'd like. But uh, so we submitted it to a different journal, um, thought it would go through that one okay. It didn't. Um, and, uh, and then we tried one um, uh, based on where Sue is and, uh, that didn't go so well either, and um, and we thought, what is going on? We really think this is a pretty good paper, and around that time, uh, Dr. Matthew Sprier, um approached me and said he had just gotten off, and he's one of our authors, he had just gotten off of a Zoom um, with you, Lisa, and uh, as the new editor-in-chief of JABMA, and he said that you really had a lot of ideas on how you could facilitate the submission process and the review process, and so um, uh, and a job always seemed like the right place for it. I just didn't want it to drag out for three years. And it was the easiest submission that I think of, of probably all of the paper. Every paper I've ever submitted, this this submission was easy, straightforward. And so I congratulate you on all the changes you've made um, and, and your team to um, making it a um, uh, less arduous process than it has been in the past.
0: Yeah, thank you for saying that. We worked really hard to get there. Uh, we have a great team and we are focused on author services, you know, customer friendly. Our authors and our readers are the customers. And so thank you for that. And we're really glad to have this. I obviously think this, you know, will put as much meet behind this as we can. This is a super important, clinically important manuscript. It belongs in JABMA. So thank you for trusting us.
2: Why this might resonate for practitioners is, um, you know, it is, and we alluded to it briefly in the manuscript and the introduction, is these are often pretty emotionally charged situations when you're faced with a horse that somebody's worried about having a femoral fracture. So having another tool in the toolbox to, uh, you know, make sure that there, you know, actually is a femoral fracture versus maybe something else or maybe just a bunch of swelling. And because, you know, a lot of these other injuries that can occur and create that swelling, um, you know, can create that severity of lameness initially. Um, And so it's a stressful time. And maybe that's part of the reason why it's resonated.
0: I think that's a really, really great point. You know, living in Ithaca, New York, every time we get those big ice storms, you just hold your breath knowing you're gonna get two or three phone calls from referring vets. This horse slipped, it's non-weight bearing, it has a giant swelling in the pelvic slash thigh region. And if the if your modality that you and Sue now have brought and and beautifully demonstrated for practitioners, think of what that can save those owners and the horse suffering. I mean, there's nothing we can do for the vast majority of these. So they can, you know, now they have. Knowledge, right? Knowledge is power. So I, I think just de-stressing the situation there at the barn. So I, I absolutely agree with you.
2: And I think that was a, a lot of what drove Sue too with this mm. topic as well. Is is um reducing you know, that vet time. in the field. You've
3: mm-hmm. been that vet in the field. You just anything that can reduce the time or the necessity to travel, even. Yeah, it's fabulous.
1: I love when our manuscripts do come from our clinical experience because then it's so much easier to write that clinical relevant section of not only the abstract, but also just throughout the manuscript to just keep on hitting it home with that. So I do feel like that makes the manuscript too, definitely more powerful. So this question is a favorite of our listeners. We can start with Sue. If a veterinarian is about to meet a client, what is the one piece of information they should know about the ultrasonographic diagnosis of femoral fractures in large animals? Um, Yeah, pretty short, I
3: think. Ultimately, it is doable. You read the paper, it is doable. And with something as simple as the appropriate machine settings and a reasonably solid knowledge of anatomy, this is doable in the field.
2: Um, When in doubt, compared to the other side. (laughs) That's good. Actually, it's good for a lot of things, but this included. (laughs) And also in this day and age, you know, if you're anywhere, if you've got cell service, if you've got... Um, you know, Wi-Fi in a barn. Uh, there's, you know, there's so many opportunities if you're out there to reach out, you know, phone a friend um, mm-hmm. who who might have more experience or, you know, um, you know, you can even FaceTime sometimes and, and it works quite well to help. And again, again, anything, if it's your first femur that you've ever done, it might be stressful because it's your first femur you've ever done. Um so I I would say the the other piece of advice I would give is um you know whenever you can you know run probe down down the femur um you know in a normal horse when you're not stressed about
0: it. Yeah really great advice. Uh then we go even a little bit just more personal and and fun for our listeners. Uh Mary Beth what is the oldest or the most interesting thing in your desk drawer? And then we'll get Susan.
2: Now is this um like where I am right now? Is that
0: uh, oh. It's all up to you? And if you have it in front of you, you can share it with the listeners.
2: I don't. I like, I think I'm just gonna go with uh, where I am right now. I'm not actually at home. I'm uh, I'm on the road a little bit, um, and I'm staying in a hotel called the Pioneer Town Motel. And it is was built in the 1940s by Hollywood movie actors um, when they filmed Westerns. And so, uh, there's, a, I mean, the door is probably the oldest thing in the, in the, in the room, maybe the ceilings too. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a cool, cool place and, uh, it remains a lot, or, uh, there's, there remains a lot of historic charm here as well. So not quite what you asked. I I have no idea what's on my desk drawer.
0: It's old. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Sue? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I actually do have something
3: weird in my desk that has followed me. It didn't make it to Davis. You'll be happy to know. But I had an old uh, head collar and lead rope from probably one of my like oldest horses I've ever treated at 44. And his owner gave me his head collar and lead rope after we euthanized him. And he taught me more patience. I know, Marybeth, I do have I had more learning to do after we got to Davis. But uh, he taught me an awful lot of patience. And his head collar and lead rope has followed me around the world, uh, which is kind of a strange thing to have in the desk, but.
0: It's a good. We certainly learn a lot from all of our patients if we're willing Mm. to listen. True. Uh, The other part, like we just love asking this question, Sarah and I learn all the time too, like the word grit you hear now. and, And I think, so you alluded to this a little bit earlier, and you both have used the word persistence, but. If if we use the word grit, you both clearly have it. Where do you think it came from, Sue? Um, Yeah, the grit
3: grit isn't a word that probably we use that often either in Australia or Ireland. But assuming there's something associated with stubbornness and degrees of determination, (laughs) um, I'll probably say my parents. I think they both have the same issues of stubbornness and determination and uh, it has been passed on. (laughs)
2: Excellent. How about you, Mary Beth? I don't know where it came from. Um, I mean, not to say that my parents didn't work hard. They certainly did, but um I don't, I think I always had this inherent um, I wanna, you know, prove that I can do whatever I wanna do, uh kind of thing that you know, I wanna do it, I'm gonna do it by myself. And 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 I think grit can have um positive and negative consequences um, <laughs> too. But and then, you know, I read some of the stuff that people are doing in equine vet to vet and going out and seeing horses and in these, you know, uh, very challenging situations. And I think, oh, I don't have any grit compared to what they're dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I don't I, I think.
3: Yeah. Isn't grit sure driving about... those tomato trucks or whatever it was? I mean, that,
2: that's oh, grit, yeah. right? I will do whatever it takes to to pay the bills. There's no question. <laughs> <laughs> Sue's referring to um, that. I I actually have a commercial driver's license. And throughout that school, to make money in the summers, you as student, they would hire students and train them to drive the big rigs and bring <laughs> the tomatoes from the field to the canneries. <laughs> and it was great summer money. <laughs> yeah, it's a good story. I haven't done it in a long time.
3: <laughs> Still gritty, I assume. It is a little gritty.
2: Well, thank you both again for
1: being here today and sharing the story of this manuscript with our listeners. We just really appreciate your time and also your contribution as well to JAVMA.
2: Thanks so much for having us. But before we end, we wanted to also thank the contributions of all of our co-authors, as well as the owners of the horses and um, and the referring veterinarians who sent them in as well. We really appreciate uh, all of their efforts. We couldn't have um, we couldn't have published this paper without them.
1: You can read Dr. Whitcomb and Jones's manuscript in October 2022, Print JAVMA or on our journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you. and We want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you
0: listen to. Until next time, take care and we'll see you soon.